you can open your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. In fact, we're going to look at exactly the same verse we looked at last week because I'm just not done. (laughs) (laughs) And our ancient foe is still after us as we just sang, so... This is one of those messages you'll regret having come to church today. Let's see, okay. So we're talking about worldliness and I told you last time I might come back to these verses one more time and that's what we're doing today. So um, I I really want to talk about what John says in terms of culture. That's a big issue for me. You know I think about that a lot. I try not to talk about it too often but then when this verse pops up it's like I have to. So we're going to talk about that. I'm going to get this microphone out of my way. There we go. Um, Culture. In in some really important ways, Christians are countercultural. Now, when I was growing up in the 60s, counterculture was considered the cool thing to do. But now they took over. So counterculture is a completely different idea today to be counterculture because the culture itself is so twisted and perverse. So we're countercultural people. In fact, every Christian everywhere is counter- countercultural in some way because every culture is infected with sin in some way. And we're not countercultural as angry revolutionaries. That's not our thing. That's a political thing to do. That's not our place. We're countercultural because we have a, a radical commitment to goodness, to true goodness. That's what makes us countercultural. The clarity of John here is, is really helpful and he doesn't leave us really any escape routes. And To falter is to compromise and um, it has a lot to do with where we, what we do with our affections, the things we love or what we're going to love or what we're going to choose to love or do we take the things we love before the Lord and ask him if those are right things to love. That's sort of where we're talking about today. Humans are compelled by their fallen nature to love sin and the world functions accordingly. And it's not that they can't do anything good or useful, it's that they, when they do do something good and useful they always end up wrecking it. That's where the world is. As a Christian, completely opposite of that I hope, the Christian can have victory over this natural love of sin because of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us who transforms our hearts. He empowers us to redirect our affections towards things that are truly good. So in short, uh, a Christian loves God and loving God reshapes our value system. That's the easiest way to say it. And as we grow in grace and in maturity in Christ, we see more clearly that the world is not where we want to be. That the world is something that's an offense to God. And we reject the ways of the world and we live for Christ. That's how a Christian's supposed to function. So let's look one more time at 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. I'm going to read it for you. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. And we explained what the world meant last week. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a pretty powerful statement. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For, verse 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So last time we took that 
those three verses just kind of phrase by phrase and explain them. This morning I want to just take the main themes in those verses um, and look a little bit more about where compromise is made so easy because it's built in to the ways and the thinking and actually the practices and the culture that surrounds us. Very difficult to resist the power of the common culture. I mean, when you're raised up in a culture, the tendency is simply to adopt the thinking in some ways. I mean, people always have their little differences, but basically the, the drift of how everything's going is kind of where everybody is. Culture is never neutral. It's never neutral. It's always taking sides. And while sometimes down through history, there have been some pretty marvelous movements of God. I mean, true great revivals that have actually changed nations. It happened in England once. It happened in Wales. It happened in America uh, a couple times. Um, these, these great movements where the whole culture starts to change in a, in a direction that would be more godly or more moral at least like that. But there's one thing you can say about every time that happens, it doesn't last. It doesn't last. Because whoever that happened to and tried to change things and make things better, the next generation started to lose those things. And sometimes that goes away really fast. And other times it just goes away over, over time. Because the wickedness of mankind is always there to pull things down. That's what sin does. It happens in every civilization without exception. Prevailing morals decline. That always happens. There's no exceptions to that in history anywhere. Worldliness then is a major theme of the New Testament because we're not to be a part of that pulling down. We're to be the exact opposite influence on a culture. Worldliness is embracing, by definition you can just say worldliness is embracing the desires, the beliefs, the interests, and the values of fallen humanity in a given place. So that's what it is. So what is our place in that since we live in a culture, right? Wherever we are, whether it's India or America or anywhere in the world. Well, the New Testament even talks about our, our minds, how we come to think like we do or how we should come to think like we do. What shapes our opinions? What influences our choices? Well, culture is always working to do that, the culture around us. I've lived pretty long. I'm an old person. <laughs> I've lived through several generations, so it's not surprising that the vast majority of people, it's not surprising to me that the vast majority of people adopt the tastes and the values of the time they grow up in. I mean, in my generation it was pretty obvious, and then in the next generation people had new interests or tastes or whatever, and then for them that was like old-fashioned and kooky, and, uh, and then the next generation is the same thing, and they have their own set of values and things that they're interested in and, and like. And, all of that. So uh, it's just really easy to go with the flow. So most people do. Um, and over time, tastes change, but also values change, sometimes very dramatically. A very long time ago, when I was growing up, young people wanted to make a better world. See, my, the, when I was a little kid, the, the, kid, the older kids above me, they were going to make a better world. I was born in 1959. So we're talking about I was a child in the 60s, and the people that were young people in the 60s I looked at them and I went, these people are really strange. I mean, that's really what I thought at the time. But um, love was the word. Love was going to change everything. Love was going to make a better society. It was the age of Aquarius. 
that generation was going to transform the world. They actually talked about it all the time. We're going to change the world with love. So if you're as old as me, did you ever actually listen to the words of Age of Aquarius if you're an old person? Did you ever, I actually wrote, I, got, I found them online and I want to read them to you. So in 1969, this was the number one song on the charts for six solid weeks. It was the song that came out of a very popular musical play that was very twisted and perverted. But um, this is the song. Harmony and understanding. Sympathy and trust abounding. No more falsehoods or derisions. Golden living dreams of visions. Mystic crystal revelation and the mind's true liberation. Aquarius. Aquarius. When the moon is in the seventh house, this is the verses everybody knows, and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. This is the dawning of the age. She's singing it. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. The age of Aquarius. And then at that point, the song starts becoming kind of evangelistic. And if you're a Christian, it, some of this kind of uh, tone sort of sounds a little bit familiar. You may have been in a meeting somewhere where it talked like this. Let the sunshine in. Let the sunshine in. The sunshine in. Let the sunshine, let the sunshine in, the sunshine in. <laughs> it's a lot better when you hear the music. <laughs> oh, let it shine. Come on. <laughs> now everybody just sing along. Let the sunshine in. Open your heart and let it shine on in. When you are lonely, let it shine on. Got to open your heart and let it shine on in. And when you feel like you've been mistreated and your friends turn away, just open your heart and shine it on in. <laughs> so there's a lot of, a lot of shining on in there. That's as far as I'm going with that. But um, people love that song. And it was catchy when the mamas and the papas did it. I got to admit that. But all you'd have to do is open your heart to mystic crystal revelation and the mind's true liberation. That's all you got to do. Now I have one question. Did that happen? Did the age of Aquarius dawn? Is sympathy and trust abounding? Did that generation, now really old people, is that what they brought to the world? Does love steer the stars? Did those, folks, did those people reach some sort of elevated capacity for love and understanding? Is that what we've seen in our culture and increasing in love and understanding? Well, no. So what in the mystic crystal revelation happened to it all? <laughs> Everybody was set free. What went wrong? Well, humans were involved. That was the problem. So love quickly devolved into sex and drugs and all that kind of stuff. Just what John would call what? The lusts of the flesh. That, that's really what it turned into. Loving people turned really quickly into using people. If you talk to men that went to the summer of love in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco back then, and say, what kind of love were you after? <laughs> it wasn't the age of Aquarius. <laughs> They'll tell you too. They'll tell you what they were after. Interestingly, Paul McCartney came out with a book last year. And he was quite upfront about what drove his music when he was writing songs for the Beatles. So we're talking about songs that were really big when I was like four and five years old. Okay, early Beatles. So um, one thing about the Beatles, they wrote some really catchy tunes. But this is what he actually wrote. 
in his new book. He said, there was an eroticism behind it all. If I'd heard myself use that word when I was 17, there would have been a guffaw. But eroticism was very much a driving force behind everything I did. It's a very strong thing. And you know, that was what lay behind a lot of those love songs. Now, look, he wrote that book like a year ago. He's ancient, so um, maybe he's trying to be cool. Uh, because today's music is so pornographic, he's probably trying like, well, you know, I want to hold your hand. That's not exactly Cardi B kind of music there or anything like that. So, but actually, most of the early Beatles songs, actually, if you listen to them, they actually are about people casually living together. There's never a song about marriage in all of their works that I can remember. So Paul's probably telling the truth there. And you know what he was doing? He was shaping culture. With, with that eroticism that he was bringing out. So if the lust of the flesh is, is a sign of worldliness, then that is literally presenting to the world, into their minds, having them sing along with worldliness, just like the, the, uh, the music for the Age of Aquarius is trying to get you into mystic crystal revelation, whatever that is. I have no idea what that is. So for many artists, love means uninhibited lust. That's what it actually means. And the very thing the Apostle John tells us is not from the Father, but is from the world. So I'm using these really old examples, but I mean, because today I can't read examples because it's so bad I can't publicly say things. But um, it's the world, the accepted system of sin and rebellion against God that the evil one uses to diminish our love for God or to taint it or to direct it into something else. To draw our hearts and affections away from God and his righteousness. And if Satan can put it to music, so much the better. Because you, you've just read those lyrics, like those Age of Aquarius lyrics, they're stupid. I mean, they're really dopey. But, but if, when you're singing them, they're really catchy and you just kind of sing along with it and go and dance with it. Remember, Jesus said to seek Jesus said to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Somebody read the Bible, I heard it. <laughs> and his righteousness, that, that's what we're supposed to seek. Satan's great desire is for believers to get all muddled with attachments to sinful things, the sinful interests of man. And that way, their love for God shrinks and they're compromised. So you cannot love the Father and love the world, John says right there. Yet one has to give way to the other. So here we are a, a half a century after the Beatles and I, I can't even quote popular songs today because they're so perverted and pornographic. I mean, just beyond the pale weird. I'm just, I could never even imagine what top songs are today. It's just, uh, just it's unbelievable. Where does it get its inspiration? Well, from pornography, mainly. That's really what's driving a lot of our culture. It's often about self and our lusts, molding our thoughts and affections to conform to the pattern of this world. That's what the evil one does. John calls him the evil one. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father. It's from the world. So it's putting sinful ideas and words into our heads and into our hearts. Now, equally, if not more powerfully, is the, is the visual world. That can be um, weird apps on your phone where crazy, insane, perverted people tell you about their life. It could be film, it could be television. That was my world for a long time. Because images have a, a much greater power 
to make an immediate impression upon the mind or the heart. And we love movies because they, they can touch our emotions. That's what they're all about, right? Our affections, actually the things that we love. So somebody assembles a story with images and it makes us laugh or it makes us cry. It makes us thrilled to death or scared or whatever. We, get, we become completely absorbed in what happens to a character on a screen who's not even real. My wife can get completely caught up in the, it, with tears watching a coffee commercial. I remember that one, some, some lady's like waiting for the man to show up and, or whatever. And something, it was like 30 seconds and she was crying already. I mean, that's how powerful film is. It just means you have a tender heart. It's a good thing. <laughs> there wasn't anything bad about the coffee. <laughs> but if you think about them doing that for a few hours, what we're, like if you go to the movies, for a few hours you are giving all of your attention to people who will control everything you see and hear so that you can have a good time and they can make a lot of money. That's the purpose of that. And that art form is so powerful that we accept things done on film that we would never approve in life, even though real people are involved in those things. Very often we're shown things on film or TV that can only please the evil one. And parents often show things to their children that can only please the evil one. And Christian parents do it too. Remember last week we talked about the lust of the eyes. Wicked, wicked people show us things we should not see and those things find a response in our sinful natures. That's why John makes sure to tell us about the lust of the eyes as well as the lust of the flesh. Our internal desires are the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes is something outside that we see that provokes the lusts that are within us. And images can be planted deeply within us. You know, there's no filters on your eyes. Your eyes don't have filters. So you have to make choices with your, about your eyes and what they're going to see and who's allowed to have access to them. That's just part of being wise. But images could get, get planted very deep. I don't know why, because I had a wonderful childhood, but I don't have very many memories of being a child. I mean, just now and then things provoke a memory and I'll remember some cool thing or whatever. I just don't have a lot of memories. But I do remember with clarity the first image I saw as a child that I should not have been allowed to see. I remember that. That's how deeply and immediately that was planted into my being. So Christians have always been really careful about what we see and what we hear especially when we entertain ourselves with things because we're choosing to feast our eyes and allow other people to stimulate our emotions. So we've got to be really careful of who we choose to do that. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. That word literally means pressed into a mold. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's our calling as believers to, to make that a reality in our lives. Do not be conformed to this world. The world is all about pressing us into their mold. So that's really a big issue, whether we're going to be molded by them or by something better, like the Holy Spirit. The world, so fallen humanity, 
whose hearts and minds are held captive by the evil one, they're deciding what stories to tell us, what values to teach us, and what images to present to our eyes. They're deciding that. Now that's a big issue for me personally. It became a huge issue for me personally in my young life because most of you know I came to California to go to film school. That's, that's where I was when I became a Christian. That's, that was the industry I wanted to get involved with. Well, how do ideas, I had to struggle with this, how do ideas like holiness, which I was just learning about, and worldliness, how do they work themselves out in that sphere of art, film and entertainment and all of that? And it could be any form of art or any kind of thing like music or, or whatever, but the art of filmmaking, that was the one that drew me in the most. So I had to like decide, where does, where, how does that work? And it took me a while to really sort it all out because I was a new Christian. In fact, somebody asked me very recently, it may have been Dan Houtman, but um, he said, why film? What, what attracted you to film? And I gave him a really simple answer, like the composition of images. I just really like, and I did. I love golden age movies because they're beautifully shot and I just, think that's really cool. But it was much more than that. The thing I love about film is that it takes all of these different art forms and puts them into one incredible package. So you have writing, photography, music, acting, sound, um, costume design, set design, and two really unique things about film. One is you can control time because of editing. You can literally control time. In, in terms of what you're presenting. And you can control exactly what a person is looking at, especially if you're sitting in a movie theater. Now, I know people that, my son watches epic movies on his phone, like I can't do that, like this is an epic movie, how can you even enjoy it on a screen that big? But if you're in a theater, you're literally being controlled every moment, right? These, these images are designed to draw your eyes to certain things and you're constantly being presented with things and that's, that's what, it, it's a power. It's a very great power, if you're good at it, now, if you're bad at it and you make lot, rotten movies, then people will sit there and laugh and do other things. But if it's good, artistically, it draws you in and captures you and tells you exactly what you're going to hear and see and do all of that and even how you're going to feel. So in that way, film is the most comprehensive of all art forms because it brings them all together. That's what I loved about it. And it has incredible power, extraordinary power. And when you can control that much of a person's attention for hours, if you're good at what you're doing, it's a very powerful tool you've got to wield. So then what if you're using that power to promote what is evil? What if you're doing that? What if filmmakers want you to delight in lust? What if they want you to find pleasure in vengeance? What if they, because they're pretty turned into human nature, you know, so what if they want to exploit your sinful nature? Because they have it. They don't even think of it as sinful. They just think it's fun or whatever. But they want to exploit that to get money out of you. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11, which is sort of the standard verse to go to on these things. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. It's not a real stretch to say if it's disgraceful to talk about the wicked things people do in secret, to film them for you with all the skill that Hollywood has developed over the years and then present them to you, that's, there's something seriously wrong there, right? So what if all that power of craft, of, of talent, 
large corporations put before you in glorious, high definition, technicolor, widescreen, things that the Bible says it's disgracefully to even think about, to speak of. Well, quite often that's what they do. Not always, but very often that's what they do. It's their nature to do that. These are the things the Christian church has spoken against since the very beginning. Not film because it didn't exist, but he had the Roman theater which was very lewd and disgusting and crude and all of that. And of course the gladiatorial games. And all of the early church fathers that we have a record of spoke about those things and said don't go. You don't go. You don't go to the Roman theater. And you don't go to the gladiator shows either. <laughs> and for some people that's really hard because you know what? A gladiator show is pretty exciting. You want to see, you, th you like boxing? What do you see guys cut each other up? That's pretty thrilling. One thing about that though, is if you wanted to see it, you did have to go. You had to get up, you had to cross the street, you had to go down to the, the theater or the temple or wherever these things are happening and you had to pay some money and you had to go sit in your seat. Now, well, it's on my phone. Everything I want in the world, every disgusting thing in the world is available to me immediately. You know when I was a kid there was like the family TV. It was in a prominent place. It wasn't secret. There was anything about that. If anything was on everybody knew it. And then there was the computer and the World Wide Web and things were put in children's bedrooms and there were no sensors. I mean there was a sensor on the big TV. These three networks that owned everything and they had sensors that controlled what you saw. And the sensors are all gone. They've been long gone. But now we have unfettered access to a world that has no sensors. And then on our phones, this fantastic invention used well by the enemy of our souls. I can have anything, anywhere, anytime. You don't have to go anywhere. It's right there. You can just Google it. It's an even bigger problem because about 40 years ago, Christianity took a very unique turn in terms of church history. Because the church always condemned the, the theater. And um, sometimes it's kind of, it's remarkably intense how much they condemned it. I mean, you read Spurgeon on the theater, he's like, go to the dog's meat if that's what you want to do. You know, but it was like he called it like horrible things. And just talking about the English theater in like the 1900s, it was like, or, or I mean 1800s or 19th century. And thinking, what's wrong with that? You know, but um, they, had, they had their concerns about all of that. And I still love film and I still watch films. Although I am very careful. But 2,000 years of warning about 40 years ago were suddenly dropped out of Christian churches. And many Christians started to say this. And so when I was in that very place where I was struggling with these issues, a lot of important Christians were saying, you know, if it has artistic merit, then it's good. Despite whatever kind of content it has. Now there's a reason the church never taught that before our time, but historically it never taught it. it. And because it's, they recognize that you can't say that because it's a, it's a misuse of the word good. It's twisting the word good. There's different kinds of good. There's craft good. That's very well made. You made a very beautiful table there. Good job. I love it. 
or on film it would be the cinematography was really good or he is a very good actor. He gave a great performance, a good performance. Well that kind of good, there's, there's that kind of good and then there's moral good as in God approves of this. Those are two very different kinds of good. And somehow people got it all mixed up. One kind of good is about proficiency and the other kind is about righteousness and those are very different things. Satan is proficient in what he does and he has inspired many Academy Awards. That doesn't make him good in the sense that matters to a Christian in terms of what's righteous and good. That just makes him good at what he does. In fact, if you just think for a moment, the better it is craft-wise can be the worse that it is morally. If great skill, great skill, all the greatest talents are brought together to promote evil, that's even worse because it's making evil more attractive. Right? That's just sort of logical. It's not only not good, it's, it's a greater evil because it has more power than something that's poorly made. You know, there are tawdry, cheap exploitation movies. You know, they used to make those. Like, they still probably do make those. But um, I remember a movie in the 70s. I didn't see it. It was called I Spit on Your Grave. I mean, a movie like that is like you kind of know what you're going in for. You're going to laugh at some kind of insanely mad nonsense. It's designed for people that have no taste whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of junk like that. But if it's a blockbuster movie that costs $200 million to make and the critics are raving about it and everybody and their uncle goes to see it and everyone at work or school is talking about it and it promotes evil or exploits actors to make it, well, what then? Is it good? Well, it might be good craft-wise, but that doesn't mean it's morally good. It could be wonderfully packaged sin and worldliness. What, what do you think the devil prefers? Cheap exploitation or masterfully crafted sin? I think he prefers both because some people like one thing and some people like the other thing. He always, he always designs temptations for where you are. So how does a film or television show fall into the category of evil? I've done this before but I'm going to just run through this real quick with you. In fact I taught a 10-week class on this a couple of times when I used to teach out in uh, Foothill Bible Church. But you can boil it down to two things. It's worldly if it has an evil message. It intends the purpose of the story is to throw your sympathy on the side of sin. That's an evil message. It's conveying the support of evil, right? So in our day that's often sexual sin but it can be criminality or vengeance or deceit or cruelty or the rejection of good like proper authority, like your parents, or um, it, it can promote wrongdoing, glorify wrongdoing. So that's one, it has an evil message. And the other thing that could make it worldly is if it, ha it, it uses evil methods. Okay, so that means the way they've done it, whether it has an evil message or not, is corrupting or evil. Now, to me, the shaky cam is evil because I hate it when movies bounce around. But that's not a moral evil, that's a artistic evil. <laughs> Don't give me a movie that has shaky cam. Drives me nuts. Because, you know, when I walk around, the world doesn't do that. <laughs> so I'm talking about the way they chose to present the story you're, you're seeing. How, what the decisions they made, how they're doing it. In fact, the story could be virtuous. 
right through, promote all the right things, honor, fidelity, truth, all those kind of good things. But the creators use worldly means to convey that story. And a couple of examples of this, one would be just the content itself, S things that are presented to your sinful nature that you shouldn't be seeing. That was an old trick. So, you know, Hollywood was kind of free reign. It wasn't nearly like it was today, but before the mid-30s, they were pretty much putting anything they felt like they could get away with in movies. And the, the, the master was Cecil B. DeMille. He would make moral movies, often Bible movies or Christian movies, and then stick as much flesh as you could possibly get away with in those old movies. And then in 1935, the, the production code went into full force and the censors ruled Hollywood and none of that stuff could happen anymore. So he just kept making the same movie. In fact, they took one of his movies that was so perverted and sick, they just cut out all those things and re-released it and it was very popular again. It was a Christian story, actually. But you know what he did? He just made movies without that stuff and they were very successful and he went on being one of the great directors of all time. So um, that's how it worked. Sleazy virtue. Just drop in them. So that's the, the, the story. The message was good. The method was evil. That's what I mean. The other aspect of that, of course, is exploiting actors and misusing human beings to present material. Um, actors and actresses, I, I know it's hard to believe, but they're human. They're real people. They're just like us. And because they're human, using them indecently is a sin against them. Even if they're okay with it, and often they're not okay with it. There's a chapter in my book that I wrote over 20 years ago called Worldly Amusements, and the chapter is called The Law of Love. It's about the duty that a Christian has in love towards the performers in a play or a film or anything that they're going to entertain themselves with. It's exactly the same reason you don't go to a gladiator show as a believer. Not just because it's bad for you, though it is bad for you to watch people kill each other. But it's bad for them. In other words, I, I love the gladiator enough. I'm not going to go and patronize him being pushed into an arena to fight for his life. I'm not going to sit there and enjoy that. Even if it's really exciting. Even if they're good at it. It's a grievous evil to use a human being's death for your entertainment. The church always taught that. It's a sin against the poor wretch that's been forced to be in that. Well, they're going to die anyway. My not going isn't going to keep him from dying. So why not go and enjoy it? It's a sport. Because that makes you a partaker. And Paul says do not be partakers with evil. Your attendance is approval. My friend Cap Stewart, I call him my Padawan. Talk about the influence of movies. I call this guy my Padawan. That's a Star Wars word. He's a disciple, like a Jedi disciple. But my friend Cap Stewart has taken that chapter in my book, The Law of Love, and just built on it, refined it, made it so much better, applied it in kind of all kinds of different ways. He's really becoming known also for that. But uh, I didn't get it. This wasn't my original. I got it from William Wilberforce when I read his book about actors and how they, we need to love them and protect them, not participate in the ways they're degraded. And that was way back in the 1700s. But Cap focuses primarily on our obligation to the performers and he's collected many, many accounts of what it's like, uh, what actors say about their own experience in Hollywood. 
so many actresses and many of them are A-list top name actresses describe the trauma, the shame, the burden of acting out sexually in front of other people. They describe vomiting and crying and crying uncontrollably and needing to drink to, to survive through the, the moments, hiding out in the bathroom. They use words like traumatizing, terrifying. Have you ever heard of the show Game of Thrones on HBO? See, I don't, I've never had H, I've never seen it. I've, I don't get HBO because HBO is the company that really brought pornography into everybody's living room. So I don't really want to support that, even though they might make some really wonderful things. But that's my own conviction there. But I've never seen it. But the star, Amelia Clark is her name, once the show is over, so it went on for years, like maybe seven years or something like that. Once the show is over, she gave this really enlightening interview about her experience there. She said she had to use vodka to be able to handle the sexual situation she was pressured into. But she describes her first day on the set. She had to be raped on the set on the first, her first experience. She's 23 years old. She's right out of drama school. This, this is a quote. I've never been on a film set like this before. I'd been on a film set twice before then. And now I'm on a film set completely naked with all of these people. And I don't know what I'm meant to do. I don't know what's expected of me. I don't know what you want. I don't know what I want. Regardless of there being nudity or not, I would have spent that first season thinking I'm not worthy or requiring of anything. I'm not worthy of needing anything at all. That's exactly how trafficked women feel. You know, I'm not worthy of protection. I, they have no voice. They can't speak up for themselves. And she says now, she says, I had, quote, imposter syndrome times a million. You know what imposter syndrome is? It's like you have an important job or an important role. She was a lead in a, in a big television show. And she felt completely unworthy of it. So she had no voice. Imposter syndrome times a million. That's, that's how she felt. And nobody was there to care for her. She felt she had no agency. So she's completely at the mercy of a guy. And they had a guy on Game of Thrones who's, he called himself the perv producer. So they had acting directors and cinematographers and all that. His job was to put in content that would appeal to perverts in the audience. He actually called himself the perv director. Perv producer, that was his name. His job was to make the show suitable for perverts. Now, she knows now that all of those scenes that sh they filmed with her will forever be on the internet on pornographic websites, all of them. All Hollywood scenes end up there. She's in her 30s now and she says that producers still pressure her to take her clothes off and she says, I've had fights on sets where I'm like, no, the sheet stays up. And they're like, you don't want to disappoint your Game of Thrones fans, do you? So they're telling her that this famous show that she was on, the only thing that will satisfy her fans is not her acting or anything like that. It's her being naked. That's what they're telling her. That's her worth. They say that to her on sets. So he says, you don't want to disappoint your Game of Thrones fans. And she said, and I'm like, go jump in a lake. Now, I changed her words. <laughs> she didn't say, go jump in a lake. She said two words. I'm not going to repeat them. But they're telling her she's not a valuable person for her talent. Many A-list actresses have said the same thing or similar things. That's been their experience. Imagine not, so those are people that have leading roles. Imagine all the secondary roles and the little roles and the spot 
roles and all those things, unknowns, beginners in the movie industry trying to break in in a very competitive business and the pressure on them to do shameful things that will be forever on the internet. It's, that's evil. There's, there's, not, there's not another word for it. Do not be partakers with them. People, Christians do not exploit people to be entertained. It's not worth it. Doesn't matter how entertaining it is. We protect people. That's our job. Whether it's a gladiator or an actor, we say no. In fact, you know how the gladiator, sh ch gladiator shows finally stopped? After the, after the Roman Empire became Christianized, they were still kind of going on. And a monk ran out in the middle of a gladiator fight and was killed trying to stop it. And that kind of woke people up. Oh, maybe there's something wrong with this. And then finally they put an end to those kinds of entertainment. We don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. We expose them. We call them out. We say what they are. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. So sadly, uh, participation by Christians is so common. It's so common now that some a couple of people who are major Christian film producers, they would have produced films you've probably seen or are very aware of, last year they decided to make a Christian movie that I'm sure in their mind was pushing the envelope. So they did. They took all the money that we gave them and they broke new ground in Christian-based entertainment, putting in sexual content and pretty close to full nudity and all kinds of stuff like that. Very, the person I talked to that saw it said the nudity is bizarre and it's like weird how they tried to put that in there. But it was clearly designed to inspire lust in the audience, in the male members of the audience. So these Christians have produced films in the past that made like $80 million at the box office. Pretty successful. Big, big films that you would probably recognize the names of. But thankfully the word kind of got out on this and it, it, it bombed. I'm not sure I'm glad it bombed because I think, I think Christians suddenly were saying, well this is a Christian story. It's a Christian movie based on a famous Christian novel. And I went to it and ooh. But then they would go see that in something else if it didn't have the Christian label on it. So I'm not sure it's a good thing that they suddenly recognize that Christians shouldn't make things like this. We'll go see them or put them on TV or watch them on our phone, but anyway, they did draw a line. Believers did draw a line that using God's name to show content like that was not appropriate. I'm glad they did it, but it kind of surprised me actually. So it's a strange reality. Church folks will accept from the world things they won't accept from Christians as, as if it's okay if the world does it. So I'm not sure that's a good thing or not. The bottom line, let me finish up here, is do not love the world. We, we just don't do what the world does. We're not supposed to do that. We don't just embrace what the culture loves, what the culture delights in, what the culture promotes. When it's morally good, and Hollywood does make morally good things, morally good all the way through, great, support it, be there, I'm there. If they make something of quality that's virtuous in every way, I'm there. But when it violates biblical admonitions, then we pass and we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord like Joshua did. I'm not giving my eyes or my ears to people who have no interest in my well-being at all. Or the well-being of the people that they're using up. In a, in a brutal system. 
they have to earn the right to tell me stories. That's the way I look at it. They have to earn the right. I don't just go in and let them show me what they want. I love a good movie. I really do. But I do love Jesus quite a bit more, <laughs> if that makes sense. Quite a bit more. So it's really not that hard to say no once you commit yourself to it. And, and I love a good, there's been some films I'd like, I would really love to see what so-and-so director did with that. But then I find out there's something in it that's an abusing a person or it's wrong or shameful and I'm not gonna go. That's that simple. It's not hard. It's actually a kind of a good feeling to say, I actually have control over my world, you know. They don't tell me what to do. I tell them what I do. But we all have to make decisions. We all have to make decisions for ourselves. Some of us might make decisions in different ways, different appropriate places or whatever. I don't think this is appropriate. Well, I think that one's okay, whatever. There's a great letter from Abigail Adams when she was in France representing America. Her husband was the ambassador to France. And she went to the ballet. Well, she's from Boston. Like, you know, she's, she's a descendant of Puritans. So when she saw women dressed in ballet clothes, she was like freaking out. And, but she, so she's writing a letter to her sister. It's pretty funny. She's, she's, it was just amazing the things their bodies can do, you know, but, but what they were wearing, it was a shock, you know, that kind of stuff. It was like, so yeah, but then later she got used to it. So I'm not saying the ballet's wrong. I'm just saying that, you know, there are some things that are give and take and based on this or that, but some stuff's pretty obvious. You take somebody's clothes off, that's not okay. That's not, that's not appropriate. And scripture being naked outside of your marital relationship is always shameful, always shameful. There's no exceptions. So other people might make different choices than you with regard to certain things or certain levels of this or that or language or these things, but um, you be committed to following the Lord's guidance as you see it in Scripture. That's what your job is. You don't have to have the same opinions about me as everything. But, but we are not of this world, and culture must always be examined. What do we keep from culture and what do we reject from culture? According to Christ... Not according to my opinion, but according to Christ and what the Bible clearly teaches. That's what we have to do. But if I do that, people will think I'm different. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. You're bearing witness right there. Different is exactly what we're supposed to be. Not arrogantly different. Not smugly different. Just loving God different. That's all. That's all. Let's pray. Lord, we see the world sink ever lower and your word says that wicked men will proceed from bad to worse it's very clear may we proceed from love to more love and greater love from holiness to deeper holiness we ask you by the Holy Spirit to transform our minds you conform us you conform our hearts to Christ let him be our standard and our guide in his name we pray amen